when it feels scary, even when it makes us flinch a little bit or steps on our toes, that Jesus, we will submit it to you. We will let you be the lens, as Bishop Jamie preached last night. Clean our lenses. Clean that window. Let us see you for who you are, not what we've been taught you are, not what we've been told by family members you are, but you reveal yourself to us through a powerful encounter. In my name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Before I hand the mic over to Bishop Jamie, he had, he had mentioned last night kind of how he came to know about my existence. And it was because I spent like 500 of my own dollars on his website buying his teachings. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in October of 2021, I read John 14, 8 through 9 through a whole different revelation than I had ever before. And Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, it's good enough for us if you just show us the Father. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, how long will you be with me until you realize when you see me, you see the Father? So through that revelation, it sent me down a journey I was not ready for and I was not comfortable with. And I fought myself the whole way because it's scary to see Jesus as he is. And so I started looking for teachers who really teach an unvarnished Jesus. Now, what do I mean by unvarnished Jesus? I don't want any political varnish on Jesus. I don't want any comfortable varnish on Jesus. I don't want any theological varnish on Jesus. I just want the raw, real Jesus. I want the unvarnished Jesus, the Jesus that came and flipped the world upside down. That's the Jesus I want. Not the Jesus that's comfortable and packs churches or makes people happy and clap and shout about their own political agenda. But I wanted the real Jesus and I wanted people who preached the raw, real Jesus that made me uncomfortable. It made me question everything I was taught. That's the Jesus I wanted to encounter. And I found that in Bishop Jamie's teachings. And I couldn't get enough of it because I felt like for the first time someone was giving me Jesus without all the fluff. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of Jesus plus fluff. I don't want you to make Jesus comfortable for me. Just preach Jesus through me, man. Even when it makes me question my own theological upbringing or my own systematic theology, I was taught in Bible college, I just want Jesus because everything bows before Jesus. He is the authority. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when I heard Bishop Jamie's teachings, man, the Holy Spirit was just jumping all around inside of me. And I got excited and my wife was like, why are you watching so many of this man's teachings? Because I was like, I can't get enough of Jesus. And my brother Stacy's saying amen because he's been in the same boat as me. And when, Bishop, when I contacted Bishop Jamie and he, listen, Bishop Jamie's a busy man. This ain't some man that just got free time in his schedule. This man who never met me, never knew me, never knew anything about me, spent time with me in ways that people from my own denomination would not and refused to. And this man made time for me. I'm about to cry even thinking about this because I'm, I'm nobody, man. I'm some 26-year-old kid in South Carolina. Come on, man. We're, we're about 80 years behind every other state. Come on now. I, I'm, I'm just some kid. And here's Jamie Englehart, bishop of his own international ministry. And this man saw something in me. And just Holy Spirit connect us through a very kindred spirit. And I'm believing if you will open your hearts and minds in the way you had before, you will be transformed too. And when you see Jesus as he is, he will transform you radically. All right, let's hear it for Bishop Jamie. Thank you, Pastor Josiah. Man, I had to take him with me on the road to introduce me. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Probably, as long as I don't believe my own press, we're all right. <laughs> no, I, 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 I want to just 
but just encourage you all and say kind of a, a real ditto back because you know, I, I run into a lot of young leaders that don't have the hunger that's in, in this pastor. You all realize that, right? Uh, there's a lot of people I run into, and this is something I, I, I learned a long time ago, is when you've been raised hearing the gospel of fear, when someone actually preaches the real gospel to you, it produces many times fear in you because it feels like the polar opposite of everything you were taught. I remember I have a young man that grew up with me in church. I mean, we, we went camp together every year. We were best friends from about 10 years old all the way to about 16. Then we went to different schools. And uh, him and I had lost touch for almost 30 years. Uh, but his, his older sister is my administrator and bookkeeper, and she's worked for me for several years, uh, which he didn't even realize that. And one day he's driving down the road. This was about four years ago. And his wife is, is playing a sermon because they'd kind of uh, got a little fresh hunger for God, start find, found this little church. And he's listening, and he's like, who is this guy? And, and he said, man, I never heard nothing like this before. She said his name's Jamie Engelhart. He said, Jamie Engelhart from Bay City, Michigan? She's like, yeah, I think he said that. He said, that was my best friend growing up. Are you kidding me? And so he contacts me. He said, this is not what your dad and my dad taught us. And I said, yes, I know. You know, and, and again, I mean, thank God for our dads and that they, they helped ground us. And, and listen, it, it's not that things that were taught in the past were all wrong. A lot of it just wasn't complete. And, and so it's like, it's like God is like grounding it out now. He's bringing the rest of the story, uh, if you may. And, and the, the, the difficult part, though, is that we have a hard time letting go. You know, we all like new stuff. I mean, I don't care who you are. Everybody likes a new car. Everybody, I know every one of you ladies in here like a new pair of shoes and a new, a new purse. I don't care who you are because you can't get enough purses and shoes for some reason. Uh, uh, we, guys, we got our own stuff. It might be tools or, you know, maybe something else. Uh, it's just ours tend to be a little more expensive, but they just got a whole lot more than we got. And, uh, but, but we all love the new. The struggle is not receiving the new. The struggle is what you have to let go of in order to receive the new. And most people struggle is not grabbing on to what God is doing in the earth because, uh, you know, Jesus put it like this. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Notice, not the word that precedes out of the mouth of God. A lot of people are stuck in a preceding word, and they're not moving forward in a proceeding word. See, there's a reason why through the wilderness that every day God gave them fresh manna, and he said, don't take the manna of today into tomorrow, because if you try to take the proceeding word of today into tomorrow, it's now a preceding word. That's why he that is in near, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, not what the Spirit said. Every Sunday all over America, there are preachers getting up and declaring what God said, but it's not what he's saying. Uh, listen, I can preach Moses to you. I can preach the Old Testament to you, and God said that. But is God saying that? No, of course not, because first of all, none of us in here are Jews. All right, and Jesus and, and the Old Testament was speaking to Jews, not Jews. All right, it's very important to understand that. Okay, now that doesn't mean that there's there's not things that we can learn from it and things that aren't applicable, and that the Holy Spirit can't breathe on something fresh that God said and make it what He's saying. But 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 Peter called it be established in present truth, as in what what is God saying? today? What's he saying right now? What covenant are we in? Most folks, I mean, I'm telling you, if the Apostle Paul, if Apostle Paul showed up in most of our churches, he'd be like, you all are still fighting and whether you're under the Ten Commandments? Have you not read my letters? 
Like, are y'all kidding me? He's like, have you not read Galatians? Because you got to understand something. The law is all or nothing. It's not bits and pieces. James says if you keep one part of the law, you got to keep the whole thing. If you break one law, you broke the whole law. There, there is no ceremonial law and moral law. That, that man put all that in there. The, the law is the law, and according to 2 Corinthians 3, it's called the law of sin, death, a, a message of condemnation, Paul said, written on stones. That's only talking about the Ten Commandments. You and I, because I, I, I still have even folks that, that get a revelation of grace. They say, oh, no we're still under the Ten Commandments. We're just not under the 603 ceremonial laws. And I'm like, it's all or nothing. Uh, because if you say you're under the Ten Commandments, I want to know, are you having church on Saturday? Well, I guess this week. Uh, anyway, we're, we're okay this week because we're having church on Saturday because the Sabbath day is Saturday. And so if you tell me that you're under the Ten Commandments and you're not having church on Saturday, you're under the big nine, not under the big ten. I tell people, are you loving God with all your heart? I try my best. Big eight. Are you loving your neighbor as you love yourself? Well, I try. Big seven. Okay, li listen, it's, we, we, we get so consumed with it where love is the fulfillment of a law. Jesus did not come to keep the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Matter of fact, you know that Jesus broke the law quite regularly? Jesus had no problem breaking the law of Moses, but listen close. He never broke the law of God. Not one time. As a matter of fact, Jesus would touch stuff he wasn't supposed to touch, eat stuff he wasn't supposed to eat, did stuff on the Sabbath day he wasn't supposed to do, hung out with people that were unclean. He was constantly, and, and, and this is the language I like to give, Jesus had no problem becoming unbiblical in order to be Christ-like. The woman brought in the act of adultery as a good Jew. It was biblical for him to pick up a stone and stone her, but he chose to show her Christ-likeness instead because the whole purpose of the law and the prophets was to point to him. He was the fulfillment anyway. He was there to show us... Being Christ-like is the point of the rest of the Bible, not keeping the scriptures to a T, because I got people like to fight with me, man. They're like, bus God, we need to get back to being biblical. And I'm like, which part? Because there's a whole bunch in that Bible that you don't do. Listen, I'm here to tell you right now, you can try to tell me all day long that, I'm not, that I can't eat shrimp no more. I'm just telling you, I'm going to have some shrimps. I like shrimp. I like bottom feeders. I'm going to eat them. You're not going to put me into bondage by telling me I can't eat shrimp. And I'm not going to stone my grandchild that comes over and doesn't obey me. All right, listen, I'm just not going to stone her. I'm, I'm not going to gather together the elders of the city. So just because it's in the book doesn't mean it's something we're supposed to be doing today, okay? Did God say it? Yes. Is he saying it? It's a very important, important thing to understand because Jesus was born under the law, but Jesus never wasn't here to keep the law. He's here to fulfill it. How do we know that? Because the law was never for Jesus. How do we know that? Because uh, Paul said to Timothy, he said the law is good when it's used lawfully, but the law is not for the righteous. It's for the wicked. Jesus was never wicked. He was only ever righteous, so the law was never for him in the first place. That's why he wasn't here to keep the law. Listen, when you preach a message of, of true grace, the number one verse, uh, and I'm, I'm heading somewhere with this, I promise. So the, the number one verse that people question me on all the time is Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, uh, Jesus said this. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. For not one jot or not one tittle of a law shall by any means uh, pass away till heaven and earth passes away and all these things 
be fulfilled. And I have people tell me all the time, you see, Jesus himself said he didn't come to abolish the law until you go to Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 7, and you go to, I can show you at least four or five other verses that at least e even in the Greek it literally uses the word abolish because Ephesians 2 says that Jesus abolished the law. He did not come in his flesh to abolish the law, but in his death and resurrection he abolished the law. He made it obsolete and dealt with it completely once and for all because and the question is, well, Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And he said, not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away till heaven and earth passes away. And heaven and earth is still here. So well, what's with that? And my question is always, let me ask you a couple questions. Number one, if that's talking about literal heaven and literal earth, then you're telling us that we're still under law and we should have church on Saturday. And, and, and Pastor Josiah needs to make sure to come up here with all linen on. And next week, y'all need to bring some turtle doves and some lambs. And we're going to have us a good barbecue standing right up here because, <laughs> I mean, you know, we are not under law. We are under grace. So wait a minute. So then, so what exactly does that mean? Not only that, but why would literal heaven ever need to pass away? Was there a problem with it? And not only that, but if literal heaven needs to pass away and there was a problem with it, why are you so excited to go someplace that's going to pass away? Because if it needs to be a new heaven, then what was wrong with the old one? Until you understand, and I'm going somewhere with this because I, I want to encourage y'all out on my table. I got one book left out there. That's it. And then, and then where, 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 there, there's a sister who bought a book yesterday. Is, is she here? I mean, all right, I got to save it for her because she already bought it, and I told her I'd bring them today, so I'll keep this one up here. Uh, but I got one left, but I have four USBs back there. There's 62 hours of teaching. But the Blue Series especially, it, it's how to properly interpret the scriptures. It's a master's degree program in, in two different Bible schools, uh, one of them in Florida and another one in Colorado. Uh, it's, it's been used for years. It's very actually simple to understand, but I walk people through and show you there's more than 300 figures of speech in the Bible. The Bible is rarely just clearly what it says. There's Greek, there's Hebrew, there's Aramaic. To properly understand it, you've got to understand some culture. You've got to understand, because we try to we try to interpret it with a 21st century mindset, but it wasn't written to 21st century people. It was written to 1st century Jews that, that were in the first, in the first century, and they, they thought totally different than us. Their language, let, let me show you how much language has changed just in the last 50 years. 50 years ago, if someone would have walked through the door out here, and someone would have greeted them, and they walked through the door with a smile on their face. The greeter at the door would have said, you look really gay today. Because all that meant was, you look real happy today. Now, if someone walks through the door and they say, you look really gay today, you're thinking something completely different. All right? I mean, you know, you're looking at, you know, how you're dressed. or I mean, you're like, what exactly does that mean? But so our language has changed so much, but yet over 2,000 years of change? And we read it in English, and we automatically assume it's talking about literal heaven and literal earth. And, and even though we're told in Scripture, like, like more than five times, the earth remains forever. The earth is never going to pass away. So what exactly was Jesus talking about? Jesus was speaking to Jews, not Jews. Every Jew standing there would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about because they called the temple in Jerusalem heaven and earth. Matter of fact, they called the outer court the sea because that's where the labor of washing was. They called the inner court the earth and the land, and they called the holy of holies the heavens. That was a tradition all through Judaism for thousands of years. And Josephus, 
uh, when he wrote his book, he actually talks about first century Judaism and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And he said, listen, this is what everybody called it. This They called it heaven and earth. So now when you look at it a little bit differently, Jesus said not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until the temple is destroyed. And all these things be fulfilled. What things? All the things prophesied about the destruction of the temple. It's everything Jesus talked about. Matthew 23 said not one, not one stone in this temple will be standing. It's all going to be thrown down. It's going to disappear. Zion's going to become a plowed field. That was all something that he was talking about was going to happen in the first century. And so now let me help you a little bit. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations, Matter of fact, if you want to hear the purest verse in the Bible about Jesus, I can give you one verse that explains the whole Bible. One verse explains the whole Bible. How many of you want to know what that verse is? Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That literally is one verse that explains the whole book. It's a revelation, of Je- an unveiling of Jesus Christ, that's, that's what it's all been about. But you get to the end of the book of Revelation and it says this, I saw coming out of God, not out of heaven, I saw coming out of God a new heaven and a new earth. Now the question you need to ask is what was the old one? Jesus was speaking to Jews, not Jews. The old one was the temple in Jerusalem. So what was coming out of God? A new temple. Know ye not? Know ye not? You are the temple. And by the way, this new heaven and new earth, there's no more sea. What does that mean? When I was a little kid, I remember thinking, am I not going to be able to swim when we get to heaven someday? I mean, is there no more ocean? I remember questioning my parents about that until you understand what it's talking about. What, what John was saying is there's no more outer court because you don't have to come year after year to get cleansed because you're cleansed once and for all by the blood of Jesus. And now if any man be in Christ, one translation says he is a new heaven and he is a new earth. And it's talking about a new covenant, not a new world. Y'all aren't sure what to do with that because you've been literalizing the book of Revelation and you get in a big mess if you try to literalize the book of Revelation because that means Godzilla's coming out of the ocean someday. <laughs> Listen, I mean, there are, this city, there's supposed to be pearls that are two miles in diameter. I mean, the question is, where's those oysters? I mean, I'd like to meet them bad boys that could pop out that, that size of pearl right there. I mean, I mean there, people think that literally the New Jerusalem is going to be a literal city sitting over in the Middle East, and it literally is 1,800 miles high. Do you realize that that is as high as the space station? Literally, it would knock the earth off its axis. It's not talking about something literal over in the Middle East. See, if you don't understand that language, then then you're going to totally miss what Jesus was talking about. And the law did pass away at the cross. And according to Hebrews 8.13, he removed the first, speaking about the law. He made it obsolete, and it will soon pass away. What was that talking about? Literally, once the temple was destroyed, there was no place to go even offer the sacrifices anymore. That's why Hebrews chapter 9 says that while the first temple is still standing, the way to the holy place has not yet been made plain. In other words, the temple had to be destroyed so the Jews had no place to go to offer sacrifices anymore. And so once and for all, Jesus was the once and for all final sacrifice. No more blood being shed. Done deal. Well, that's good news right there. But anyway, there's like 14 hours of that. 
out there in that series that it just it's it's some rich stuff. Uh, the white series out there is like nine hours on your identity in Christ, how God sees you, how He perceives you. Four hours on grace and faith, like sonship. Uh, the yellow series, a uh, little bit of what I'm sharing tonight, but but nine hours on what actually really is the love of God. And then we go into fivefold ministry and finding your gift and calling. And then there's 14 hours on the saving of the soul and the renewing of the mind. Because when you got saved, your soul didn't get saved. Your soul is being saved. Peter said the end of your faith is the salvation of your soul. Not the beginning of your faith. The moment you got saved, there was a quickening, that which came alive on the inside of you. But now you work out your salvation. Not for your salvation, you work out. What's finished in your spirit now needs to get into your soul, spill out on your mind and your body. Thy kingdom come on my earth as it is in heaven, and heaven's living on the inside of you because the kingdom of heaven is within you. And I'll walk through another 14 hours and show you what does it actually mean to get your soul saved. As I've heard people for years say, man, we had a move of God, brother, and we had a 100 souls saved. And I said, well, praise the Lord. So you've had a 100 people in your church for at least 5 to 10 years, and you've been discipling them and growing them. Their mind is no longer carnal. The will is no longer rebellious, and their emotions are no longer warped because that's what it means to get a soul saved. What you said is you've got a bunch of spirits born again. That, 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 that's the language of it. It's not you're getting your soul saved. Man, that, 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 that's an outworking. That's... There's a flow with that. That's called growing and maturing in the things of the kingdom. But anyway, I encourage you. I have a special price if you buy one of everything out there. I believe it will be a blessing to you. And hopefully I haven't lost you all before I get going tonight. Are you all still doing all right? Listen, just know, just know just because you haven't heard it doesn't mean it's an issue of right or wrong. You just haven't heard it. And and I try to tell people this all the time. So listen. Don't ever, ever say, I disagree, if you don't have all the information. All right, listen, it's actually arrogant to say you disagree with something someone said if you've never studied it for yourself. All right, now if it's just different than what you heard, what you ought to say is, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. That's, that, that's a humble response. But, but if, if, if you've only read one book about something, and you went to one seminar, and now you're an armchair theologian, and you think you know what you're talking about. Uh, maybe, maybe just humble ourselves a little bit and say, "Man, I, you know what? I've never heard that before. I don't know." But I don't immediately say I disagree because if I don't have all the information, I don't have anything to disagree with. That's what. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. It's how this life of God is manifest through us. And so, uh, anyway, he he he'll continue to add to this. Way after I go, I also just I want I want to acknowledge some friends. You know, I, I came a long way, uh, but we had some friends that, that came from way all the way from Georgia. My friends, the Nobles, wave at everybody, and they 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 come this weekend just to hang out with us a little bit, all the way from Georgia, and uh, we bless them. And he knew exactly what you were talking about because he started listening to a bunch of my stuff and a few of my friends, and uh, along with Paul White and Lynn and everybody else, and it it messed him all up in a good way. And so he's like, "Woo, thank you, Jesus!" And so. Uh, I honor them for, for being here also. All right, well, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. We're going right back into 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, one of my absolute favorite chapters in the Bible. 1 John 4. And I'm going to start in verse number 15 of 1 John 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So everybody do this with me. Say this out loud. Say, Jesus is the Son of God. 
Now, now according to that passage, right there, uh, God abides in you and you in him. Isn't that real deep? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. For God is love. God doesn't have love. He is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now love has been, past tense, perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness or fearlessness in the day of judgment. Because as he, Jesus, is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear involves torment or punishment. But he who, he who fears, now listen to the context, he who still fears punishment on judgment day has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Now, now th- this passage of scripture, I, I think, is one of the most powerful in scripture. Because, you know, I mean, I, I, was, I was raised in the church. I mean, I, I'm... You know, I was, I'm third-generation Pentecostal, and when I was growing up, late 60s and the 70s, we would have, like, revival meetings that would start at, like, three weeks, all right? You know, but, of course, back then, we only had three channels on the TV. We didn't have anything else to do, so, you know, I mean, literally, everybody went to church because that's how they saw everybody. I mean, it was, it was a different era, you know? We, we didn't have everything going on that we have going on today, which, you know, I'm not sure is issue of good or bad. I mean, I think sometimes some of the simplicity of the past wasn't all that bad. But I remember the preachers would come in, and man, they'd pull out that long, bony finger. And you're going to stand before God on judgment day. And I remember, man, being a little boy, my eyes would get like this big, and I'd be like, oh, God, God, I'm going to stand before God. And, I mean, I was such a heathen at five and six and seven years old. I was, I mean, I remember I I, I got saved at least 50 times before I was 12. I'd run to the altar at the last stanza of just as I am, fall at the altar. Oh, Jesus, I don't want to be judged on judgment day. I mean, just all, I mean, the the, the, the fear. I mean, they, they, they'd get beaten in the pulpit. And, man, of course, back then. Then, I mean, they're preaching against everything. I mean, the, the, I mean, all we knew. I mean, I've, I've told people for years, and I've got a friend, him and I have said this together for years. I mean, I was raised old-fashioned, all right? I mean, my mom has a Ph.D. still to this day, a Pentecostal hairdo. Hallelujah. It's like it, it any doctorate. I mean, she still got that hair up in the air. And, I mean, everything was a sin. I mean, everything was. The only thing that wasn't a sin was eating, hallelujah, because we had to keep one sin for ourselves. And, and, you know, we thought Paul was saying buffet your body <laughs> rather than buffet your body. So we're like, hey, well, we could potluck with the best of them because we got to keep one sin, man, and have a little bit of fun. We're at least going to eat in Jesus' name because we're going to be eating all through eternity. So we might as well just practice it right now. I didn't drink. I didn't chew. I didn't hang out with those that do. I mean, everything, everything was a sin, especially if it was enjoyable. Couldn't go to movies. We couldn't. We couldn't listen to certain music. I mean, just everything was a sin. And man, they get preaching, and they'd be like, "I'm gonna name sin tonight." And man, they 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 start they start they start getting on that television you got. I remember we we had a preacher come in, and he'd preach three weeks in a row, and he he finish every sermon on television and then minister to people at the altar, and then he'd walk right over to our house, the parsonage next door, and and, and turn on the eleven o'clock news. 
and then watch Johnny Carson. And I remember sitting there thinking like six, seven years old. I'm like, man, you just told us that this is a hell of vision. And so my dad, in order to get him the one night, the last night of revival, uh, we went and took the TV and put it in the basement and we hit it. And so he got done preaching, ended a sermon with a little bit of hell of vision, and he goes over to watch the news and he says, where'd it go? And my dad's like, brother, man, we got under conviction this week and, and we just got rid of the thing. And then he got all upset because he wanted to watch the news. I mean, some of the, just the hypocrisy that went along with it, it was just everything was a sin, sin, sin. It was sin conscious and focused, and it just released me. And what I realized now over 20 years ago is the word sin, hamartia, in the Greek language actually means to live or believe a lie. And sin is not the main problem. Sin is fruit. Root is mistaken identity. If you deal with who people are at their core, the reason people sin is because they don't know who they are. They're living, they're living like sinners when they're sons and they don't know their sons. And so you get to people's identity and you teach them how God sees them and who they are in him. They stop doing certain things. That's why Paul said, awake to righteousness and sin not. Not stop sinning and awaken to righteousness. If I can awaken the righteousness of God that's on the inside of you, you're going to stop sinning because you're going to know who you are and you're going to stop acting crazy. John, John says something very powerful. He said, this is, this, is, this is God's real passion and desire is that his church have no fear on judgment day. Now, whatever that looks like, that when we stand before God, he said that you have nothing to be afraid of, that we have boldness on the day of judgment that you have nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be scared of. And, and, and why? He goes on to tell us why. Because we are as Jesus is, not as Jesus was. We are as Jesus is on the earth because what's true of him is now true of us because we are in union with him. And if the Father judged us, he'd have to judge Jesus. He said, this is why you don't have to worry about having any fear because... We are as Jesus is on the earth because ultimately your judgment is not in your future but your past. Now, we, 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 we love to quote at funerals, Hebrews chapter 9, is appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment, but then we don't read the rest of the verse, and the rest of the verse says, even so Christ died. I just want to declare to you that his judgment was your judgment. Stop freaking out about your future judgment because judgment. what brings judgment is the law. The law inflicts punishment, Romans 4 tells us. And, and, and when you're a person that thinks law and under law, you have a judgment mentality, you have a punishment mentality, and you have a fear mentality. But once you really step into the new covenant and you understand what Jesus did for you and as you, you have no fear on judgment day. Why? Because Jesus already took your judgment. Matter of fact, let me give you a verse I think that's going to set you free in some areas. We preachers, some, if you listen, if you've been in a Pentecostal church anytime whatsoever, a preacher will get preaching and they'll quote one verse and the spit will go all the way back to the fourth aisle and they'll get preaching. They'll be, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'm going to draw all men unto me. And I mean, we get all this, we're like, woo, yes, but, but then, then we, we don't know what that verse means. He actually started by saying this. He said, now is the judgment of this world complete. And I, even if I be lifted up, it's literally what it means is if I be crucified, I will draw 
Now, translators put all men, but that's in italics in your Bible. Uh, understand something. Whenever you, you're reading your Bible and you see words that are bent this way, it means they were added by translators. And the translators put it in there to try to, like, like make sure that the sentence made sense and stuff like that. Like, I'll give you a great example. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, then bent to the side, to he who walks in the spirit, not after the flesh. That was all added by translators. Because the translators couldn't handle that there's just no condemnation. No, we got to add a work to it. No, it can't just be that there's no condemnation in Christ, only if you walk in the spirit, not after the flesh. Add it to the text, not in the original text whatsoever. Because for some reason, we feel like we got to add stuff. we got to help God along. Jesus isn't enough. <laughs> and so they added, for some reason, all men. But then when you read that verse, that's the main verse then that people embrace and use for, for what's called universalism because Jesus was crucified, and he said, if I be lifted up, he was lifted up on the cross. He said, I'm going to draw all men. Literally, it, mean, it means I'm going to drag all men to myself. But but the truth is, what it actually is saying in context is not all men. That that doesn't exist. Literally says this, I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all unto myself. Well, all what? In context, all judgment. He said, now is the judgment of this world complete. And I, if I be crucified, I will draw all judgment unto myself. He took your judgment. He took your pain. Matter of fact, he once and for all washed it away, made it clean. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. This righteousness is not a self-righteousness. It's his righteousness that is righteous for you. He's the one that did it. Finished. It is finished. To tell us die, declared done. Woo, that's good news right there. Matter of fact, the Old Testament even gives us like a, a, great, a, a great picture of this. And so uh, I'm going to need some help. Pastor, would you, would you stand right here and, and, get, and face this way? And, and would you mind helping me a minute? And, and Stacey, would you come on up here a minute, help me out? And, and would, here, no, stand right up here and then face this way, not the people. Yeah, and face Pastor. And then you stand by. Now, in the Old Testament, this is what they would do, all right? Uh, he gets to be the high priest just because, you know, he's the, he's the head hog around here. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so like that. I remember my, my dad's told the story for years about uh, there was a church in Arkansas, and this guy comes in, and he says to the, the secretary, he said, I want to talk to the head hog around here. She said, sir, don't, please don't call our pastor, uh, uh, you know, a head hog. And he's a, he's a great man of God. And he said, listen here, I don't know about all that. All I know is I got $100,000 I want to give to this church. She said, I, I hear the porker coming out. Do you understand? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you want to give a hundred grand, you can call it whatever you want. <laughs> but in the Old Testament, the high, the, the, there would be the high priest, and then there would be, you get to be the sacrificial lamb, all right? And not the personal bro, but you get, to, you get to be the sinner, all right? But now what would happen is the sinner would bring the lamb to the high priest, bring the lamb to the high priest, right? Just walk him, walk him. Now, then you'd, you'd back away, and then the high priest would examine the lamb. You know, he'd check it out. He'd, he'd make sure its teeth were right, and he had to check out. You don't want to do it, do you? Know? Just, he, he had to completely, like, you know, he had, to, he had to examine the lamb. And if the lamb was acceptable, then the sinner was acceptable. But notice something. He never examined the sinner. He only examined the lamb. You guys go ahead and be seated. Listen, listen, it, it, if you get a hold of that, all right, see, we're never told that God is the one trying to examine us. He said, examine yourself. 
He's like, check yourself out, not to see if you be in grace, not to see if you be in Christ. Examine yourself to see if you be in faith, trust, and confidence. He's like, this is a fight of faith. And, and he said, if you really get that, then the good news is this, is Jesus as the lamb was accepted once and for all by the heavenly father in your place for you and as you. And once and for all, he declared forgiven. And you and I have no fear to stand before God. Why? Because we are as Jesus is on the earth. Then he says this. He said, for perfect love removes all fear. Because fear leads to punishment. Fear leads to torment. That when you have a mindset of fear, which is what the law instilled because the law inflicts punishment. I can always tell when I get around someone that's still stuck in a wrong paradigm and a wrong covenant is because they're constantly thinking that God wants to punish everybody. Every time, every, every, every time there's a hurricane, it's like, well, you know, it's got to be those homosexuals' fault. Every, 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 I mean, I, I mean, for crying out loud, I, I mean, and, and if not that, it was abortion. I mean, now that abortion has, 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 is not legal, I mean, I'm trying to figure out what all these Christians are going to blame the next hurricane on. Even though God's not counting our sins against us, but obviously because of the sin. I mean, when Katrina happened down in New Orleans, I mean, preachers, well-known preachers, respected preachers were saying this was because of the sin of New Orleans, but it barely touched Bourbon Street. I mean, you think it would at least wipe Bourbon Street out, for crying out loud. Instead, it took out the seventh ward. I was there a couple years later, and that is where the marginalized and the poor lived. Instead, it took out the people that God says he cares for and loves even the most. Didn't touch Bourbon Street. Because we get these ideas of God's going to get them. Get them, got sick of them. It's the judgment of God. But yet John says... Perfect love, which is Jesus, removes all fear. But now listen, if love removes fear, then fear can also remove love. And most of my life growing up, I, I rarely, rarely heard good news. It was nearly always turn or burn. God's pretty much angry at you on a regular basis. He's, he's, he's Zeus with lightning bolts ready to strike you down. He's the policeman in the rearview mirror that even if you have your seatbelt on and you're driving the speed limit, you still let off the gas because you've got to be guilty of something. It was this constant mindset of God's, God's going to get you. You're never good enough. You never arrive enough. It's the carrot on the stick. You're always striving and struggling and fighting. And I mean, man, I remember saying, we got to get a hold of the horns of the altar. we got to strive to enter in the narrow gate. And it's like, wait, 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 wait a minute. All of that was Jesus plus the law. On the other side of the cross, there is no striving. Matter of fact, Jesus put it like this one day. He said something powerful. He said, if Pilate says this to him, he said, if you're a king, where's your kingdom? And he said, my kingdom is not of or from this world. For if it were, my servants would fight. The word fight means to struggle, to strive, to contend. That described my first 30 years as a Christian. It was all about struggling, fighting, and contending. And what he said is this, if what you're doing is the kingdom, there's no struggling, fighting, and contending. 
as we only strive for one thing, to enter rest. He said we labor to enter rest. Why? Because it's about what Jesus did, not us. See, it's why most of the church prefers Moses. Because we like to do it ourselves. Don't tell me someone else did it for me. Just tell me what I got to do. Jesus shows up and he said, this has nothing to do with what you do. This is between me and the Father, and you just get to enjoy the benefits of it. And you just you just learn how to enjoy. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do anything. There's things that you're still called to do, but you're not doing anything for your salvation. You're doing things because of your salvation. You're not saved by works. You're saved for good works. Yes, there's still things to do. It's not about God just blessing laziness. What he's saying is you can't earn your way in. You can't struggle your way in. You can't strive your way in. Because if we're honest, the only grace we heard about for a lot of time in the church was you had enough grace to get saved. But after that, it was about you dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And you had to do everything that you knew to do to be able to make it in. And the whole Christian walk was just trying to make sure you made the rapture. trying to live holy enough, brother. I, I, I met a lady back here about a year ago, 97 years old, born in church, raised in church, loved Jesus her whole life, was a pastor's wife for 60 years. Her dad was the pastor, and she came up to me after I got done preaching a message like this, and she said, you know, I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting near crossing over, and I pray every day that God would just find me worthy enough that I make it. I said, honey, he found you worthy enough 2,000 years ago. There ain't nothing you got to do to try to get in. What, 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 what kind of gospel have you been listening to? But if your gospel is a gospel of fear, fear removes love. I don't know how to receive love. I have a hard time giving love. I have a hard time accepting love because fear drives love away. But love drives fear away. There's been a war for thousands of years between love and fear. Love and fear constantly fight each other. You, you, you can't have both. And, and, and let me just say this. I need you all to listen real close to this. Uh, if love removes all fear, that includes what we've called the fear of the Lord. See, in the New Testament, the only time post-cross you see even the phrase, the fear of the Lord, it's actually found in Hebrews. And Hebrews says it's called the spirit of of the fear of the Lord, which is the Holy Spirit. And that word fear is awe and respect. We should always have an awe of God and a respect, but we should never be terrified of God. If you're terrified of your father, something's dysfunctional in the family. But when you've been raised with fear, man, I remember when I actually started hearing the good news, it felt so foreign. I was like, this is the polar opposite of everything I was raised with. Is God that good? Is he that kind? Because, see, there's something in us for some reason that likes the idea of punishment. Because he goes on to say, perfect love removes all fear because fear leads to or involves torment or punishment. And, 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 And then he goes on to say, for he who still fears punishment on judgment day has not been perfected or matured in love. But Jesus came to show us what the Father's really like, and the Father is about restoration or reconciliation. He's not punitive, he's restorative. 
His heart is full of mercy. I mentioned it last night. Even the justice of God, according to Zechariah, he said, practice true justice, declares the Lord, which is mercy and compassion. Our idea of justice is sickum God. God's idea of justice is a father correcting his children, not punishing his children. But if your view of God is that he's a punisher, if your view of God is that he is punitive rather than restorative, then you're going to begin to look at all kinds of verses in a whole different way. And yet Jesus was our example. And if you want to know how the father's like, just look at Jesus. A woman was brought in the act of adultery. And rather than want to punish her, Jesus, rather than punish her, and understand something, if a woman's been caught in the act of adultery, those gentlemen threw her in front of Jesus but naked. She had no clothes on. And Jesus didn't say, oh, thou shouldest not as brought us the nakedest womanest into my presencest. Instead, he bends down in front of her, gets closer to all of her issues, and begins to draw in the sand. And I've heard all kinds of sermons about what did he draw. I don't think that's the point. The point is this, is the last time God took his finger and he drew, he drew in rocks, and it was a stone and a law that would have led to them stoning her. But this time, he takes his finger and he writes it in dirt in our human existence. And he said, now I'm going to take a new law and I'm going to write it on your heart, and it's a law of love because I don't condemn you. Because I did not come to the world. We love to quote John 3.16. We never quote John 3.17. For I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. His heart is not condemnation. That is religion's heart. Because in Christ there is no condemnation. You see, when we have those, those kind of mindsets, Jesus, rather than, rather than judge her, rather than punish her, brought restoration. The woman at the well, restoration. Zacchaeus, hey Zacchaeus, I know you've been ripping all kinds of people off, but I, 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 I want to come to your home. And when you went to someone's home in ancient antiquity, it, it was bigger than just, I'm going to have a meal with you. What it said is, I accept you and all the mess that goes along with you. And Jesus is hanging on the cross, and if there's anything that was unjust... It was a righteous man being beaten and being attacked and being crucified. And his response on the cross wasn't, get him, daddy. Let your justice rain down fire. His response is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So God was showing us his response to our wrath. Our anger wasn't punishment, but restoration. He was showing us you're punitive. You like the idea of the other guy getting it because you want that bully to get it because that's in your heart, not mine. That's why I mentioned it to you last night when Isaiah says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. The verses before it, God actually is talking about how much mercy he gives to wicked sinners. And then he says, my thoughts are higher than yours. My ways are not like your ways. In other words, I'm nicer than you are. I'm kinder than you are. Because perfect love removes all, all fear. Because fear leads to punishment. What, what is it about us that wants people punished? It's not our securities, it's our insecurities. It's not forgiveness. Jesus showed us 
the way of forgiveness. I think, I think one of the most powerful YouTube videos you could ever watch, I encourage you to, when you go home tonight just to look it up. You can actually put on YouTube, put man that looks like Santa Claus forgives killer for killing his daughter. And it's literally the story, I think, I think it was like John Wayne Gacy, he was one of the most famous serial killers in, in, in America, and he killed like over something like 60 women, raped them, and he killed them, and he's found guilty. And then the, the, the judge allows family members of the, those that were killed to come up and say stuff to the killer. And he's sitting there, and every one of them, they get up and they're like, we hope that you burn in hell. I mean, everybody's so angry, and, and rightfully so. I mean, this guy took something from them they can't ever get back, and man, they're, they're giving him punishment, and they're attacking him, and one person after the other, and he's sitting there, and he's getting colder and harder, and, and it's just, he's, he's getting angry, and all of a sudden, this older man gets up. He literally looks like Santa Claus. He's got the white hair. He's got the long white beard, and he's got this pleasant voice, and he says, sir, you took something from me that I can never repay what you did hurt me greatly. And I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Jesus, I am commanded to forgive. So, sir, I forgive you. And this hardened murderer stayed silent. When someone offered him forgiveness, maybe that's why Jesus said to his disciples, whoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Rather than holding sin against people, maybe when we forgive other people's sins, it actually removes the offense of that sin so they could actually receive forgiveness from the Father. Maybe some of these Catholics aren't all wrong. Maybe, maybe forgive, confess your faults one to another that you might be healed because the truth is confessing my sins to God is kind of a, I mean, if, if you want to do it, you can do it because it might make you feel better about yourself, but you bring your sins up to God and he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've got amnesia when it comes to your sin. I, I removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. So you bring your sin up to me, and, and God's just like, huh? Guys, normally you're not sinning against God. Most of the time you're sinning against yourself and your brother and sister. So maybe you need to go make it right with them. Maybe that's why James says confess your faults one to another. Because we could talk about how much Jesus has forgiven me, but you still got all kinds of mess in your heart against your brother, and you ain't never made that right. Woo, good teaching, brother. Hallelujah. Hmm? See, that's why James says, says something crazy one day. He said, he who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Notice he didn't say it's sin to God. He said it's sin to him. Because God's not counting men's sins against them. God's not the one that's holding your sin against you. We hold our sin against ourselves. We hold sin against one another. We look at each other and keep pointing the finger because we want them to get punished. Let's be honest. Have you ever had someone hurt you, even another Christian, that hurt you and said stuff about you? And, and, and you found out about eight years later that all kinds of horrible stuff happened to them? And, and someone tells you, like, oh, that's too bad. And then you get in the car, you're like, I knew it. God, the judgment of God came on me. I've been to dinner with preachers who have told me about people that had split their church and brought harm to them, and then the marriages fell apart, and their kids are going crazy, and they've literally looked at me and said, yep, that's the judgment of God, and that's what they deserve, and I've literally got sick to my stomach. I'm like, the heart of Jesus would say, Father, I don't want them to reap what they sowed. Father, I release them completely of the pain that they caused me. That's what the gospel looks like. 
The gospel's not get them. And understand this, Jesus said something powerful. Jesus didn't just say, Father, I forgive them, even though we know that the Father and the Son are in perfect union and he was forgiving them also. But, but he said, Father, you see, listen, you can do whatever you want to me. I can take a hit, man. You can punch me. You can slap me. You can hit me, and I'll still smile at you. But you go mess with my babies. You mess with my grandbabies. You mess with my kids. Come on, you mess with my wife. I might just kill you and tell God you died. Anyway, I don't That's why Jesus says, Dad, I know your heart to protect me as your son. I know your heart of a father would always be to protect your child, but please forgive them. I don't hold anything against them because perfect love moves fear. Can I give you just a simple little nugget? If you want your theology to just stay nice and simple in the 21st century, Anything that produces fear in you is not the gospel. So when you're watching your favorite preacher on TV and he's filling you with terror and he's trying to sell you all kinds of dry goods and he's trying to get you to freak out about the last of the last days and it's producing fear in you, it's not the gospel. Love removes all fear. A message that produces fear, Jesus was not a part of. Listen, God's not giving us a what? A spirit of fear. So if something's producing fear in you, this isn't this isn't deep. This is real simple. If what you're hearing is fear, run. But it blows me away how people will send hundreds of thousands of dollars to people peddling fear. Millions of dollars to people peddling fear. I mean, all just fear out of their mouth on a constant basis. And fear, 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 fear. Then they write books, and they, they write books that says, you know, this is about to happen. And, and, and we've read 50 books in the last 50 years about stuff that never did happen, and somebody got rich, and no one calls them false prophets. But then someone gets up and has a different view, and they're, 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 they're false, and, and they're a heretic. It, it'll make a lick of sense. Because perfect love removes Most of my life, and I'm, I'm going to wind this down with a testimony. Most of my life, all I knew, all I knew was fear. I was 40, yeah, 46 years old, and I was getting ready to preach at a conference. And I'm standing in the front row, and all of a sudden, I, I had this overwhelming feeling of not being safe. And, and I couldn't explain it. And, of course, my first reaction was I was looking around thinking maybe a shooter was going to come in the building or, you know, I mean, I, it, was, it was like something in me was like I don't, I don't feel safe. And it, and it went on for like six months. Every time I walked in church, and for me, that's a lot. Every time I walked in a building, I didn't feel safe in the house of God. And so I, I'd learned a long time ago that whenever something like that's happening, I, I'd learned how to pray. And I said, Holy Spirit, why? What's going on? What, what's going on in me that I don't feel safe? And nothing was coming to me, so I, I called my friend Nate, who's my, uh, we've been best friends for 35 years. We've walked together. He's uncle to my kids, and he has an incredible inner healing ministry. I mean, if, you, if you've got any issues that you want to get healed, uh, like, trust me, uh, I, I, I can send you my friend Nate. It'll rock your world, change your life. And I called him on the phone. I said, bro, man, this is what's going on. He said, all right, let's pray. So I closed my eyes, and he said, Holy Spirit, would you please show Jimmy why he doesn't feel safe in church? Of course, I've been praying that for six months. Nothing was coming to me. But he's, he's anointed for it. The moment he prayed it, all of a sudden, I'm seven years old. We're in northern Michigan at the church I grew up in. There was a little boy. We had 
a service that went till 11 o'clock at night. It was a marathon service, and I was made to sit on the wooden pew and not move for five hours. I already tell folks, I've been to hell. Uh, you, got, you, got, you got a seven-year-old boy that can't is told to sit there and not move for five hours. That is hell to that little boy. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> the service finally got over, and I was like, oh. And so I walk as fast as I can to the side door. I bust through the door, and I take off running down the hall. As I get all the way down to the end of the hall and run out the door, and the parsonage is next door, I can finally go home. I got school the next morning. I'm like, oh, service is finally over. It was a marathon, and all of a sudden, I'm in this memory, and I jump. And my friend said, what's that? I said, I've not thought of this lady in 40 years. He said, what? There's this lady, her name was Cora. Cora was a part of our church, and she was a 380-pound German woman who was Cruella de Vil on steroids. She had, she had the mole with hair coming out. She was horrifying. She was scary later. And my brother and I, we were made to call her Grandma Cora because whenever my parents would go to a conference, she was our babysitter, and we would hardly come out of our room because we were terrified of her. She was, she was mean. She was just a mean lady. And she saw me running, and, of course, back then you didn't run in church. Of course, for some reason that sent you to hell. I don't know. I don't know why running in church is that big of a deal, but anyway. <laughs> and I got, of course, I got spanked by everybody in the church because back then everybody whooped you. Now you go to jail for that kind of stuff. <laughs> I got a whooping from everybody, <laughs> especially as the preacher's kid. I guarantee you probably got a few whoopings. But no. All of a sudden she comes out of the bathroom and she sees me running and she scoops me up and she throws me over her shoulder and she starts to whoop me because she had permission from my parents to do that because she was going to hell. Of course, I'm crying and I'm, I'm weeping. And so my friend walks me through, and I forgive Cora. And I, I pray for Cora, and I release Cora because of what she did. Because she didn't, she didn't spank you. She, she, she whipped you. It was not healthy. It was traumatic. And then my friend prayed, and he said, So, Holy Spirit, would you please show seven-year-old Jamie where Jesus was? And I had this incredible encounter with God that I literally saw Jesus with both arms wrapped around her arm, and he's trying to keep her from hitting me. And he's saying, Cora, this is not love. This is not correction. But Cora, because of her own pain and her own wound, she's not listening to the voice of Jesus, and she just keeps on leading me. And I have this incredible encounter with God for about 20 minutes. And then we go back to the memory, and he said, is there peace? And I said, no. And he said, well, close your eyes again, and I'll pray. And then he said this. All of a sudden, I remembered that my dad had walked through the door while I was over her shoulder, and he stood and he watched it. And, of course, back then, we thought that was good parenting. I mean, that, that, that's just how we did stuff. We, we didn't even understand the psychology and the trauma of a lot of that stuff. And so then I walked through, and I forgave my dad because my dad watched me be beat and didn't step in and stop it. And it hit me at that very moment that I'd never really felt safe in Heavenly Father's presence because my dad didn't step up and stop that. And so I, I was, it started me on this journey. I started a, a series at our church on agape, and I preached nine weeks on love. And it dawned on me halfway through that the foundation of the church is we're to be rooted and grounded in love and I realized I didn't understand this at all. I'd been preaching for over 20 
years and I could tell you all about dominion and authority and the gifts of the spirit and I could tell you all about government and apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers. I could preach all this revelation to you but, but the foundation of everything that the gospel is about is we're to be rooted and grounded not in faith, not rooted and grounded in grace. We're rooted and grounded in love. And I realized about halfway through this series, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't get this at all. And then it dawned on me, it's because all I knew was fear. And so I finished the series about the ninth week, and I, I got on an airplane, and I flew to Chicago to O'Hell. I don't call it O'Hare, it's O'Hell. I, I spent too much time in O'Hare Airport. And when I'm at the airport, I'm getting ready to fly to L.A. to, to preach four days for a buddy of mine in the inner city of uh, Pomona, California. And someone sent me a message, and they said, have you seen Tulian Shavigian's new book, One Way Love? Uh, Tulian is Billy Graham's grandson. And um, Tulian was the rebellious grand-grandson. He was the one that, you know, and this whole book is about how his grandpa and his grandma responded to his rebellion. And so I right away downloaded it. I said, no, I haven't read it, but it's got love in it, so I'm on this love kick, so I better read this book. And so I started reading it in the airport, and I knew I was in trouble because he started talking about how he got earrings. And uh, the next time Grandpa Billy and Grandma Ruth saw him, they brought him a set of earrings. Rather than judge him like the rest of the family, rather than attack him, they she went out and bought him a pair of earrings, and she just continued to give him grace. And I started, it, 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 there was just, and the, the rest of the book, there was just something, it was like a timing issue. I'd been on this series on love, and I get on the airplane, and I can't stop. And I'm glad there was no one sitting in the middle. It was a four-hour flight from Chicago to LAX, and there was this sweet little older lady by the window, and she kept reaching over, young man, are you okay? And I'd be like, ma'am, I'm fine. I'm reading something. It's moving me. And, and it was like literally for four hours reading that book, I couldn't stop crying. And it was like, I only know how to describe it as this. It was like liquid love poured over me for four hours, but it lasted for nearly two weeks. I get off the plane, my buddy picks me up, and he's, he's a, a, an Hispanic apostle in the inner city, all right, in the, in the barrio, all right, I mean, man, he's a rough dude, he was a gangbanger, and he picks me up, he's like, dude, he's like, what's the matter with you, and I'm like, I'm trying to explain what's going on, I had this with the love of God, and I get up, I try to preach, and I cry through my whole sermon, and they're like, man, I mean, you understand something, I used to cry about twice a year before that. Like twice a year, I wasn't a crier. I'm a shouter, a laugher. I just didn't cry very much, and I couldn't stop for nearly two weeks. He drops me off then at the airport like four days later, and he's like, get, get out of here. You know, I mean, I can't even have a discussion with you. And I get on, I get ready to get on the airplane back to uh, from LAX to, uh, to O'Hare, and someone sends me a message and says, have you read Danny Silk's book, Loving Your Kids on Purpose? And I'm like, well, no, but it's got love in it. And so I downloaded that, and so then I cry all the way back home because he brings out in the book that our number one job as parents is to not just teach our kids how to behave, but teach them how to love. And I realized I didn't know how. I store gave my kids. I, I, I knew how to, I'd lay down my life for my kids. I mean, my, I understood phileo love. I understood eros. I mean, I got two kids. I, I got agape. One of the best definitions I've read is it's a one-way love that expects nothing in return. That agape loves whether it gets love back. 
It's, it's that self-centered. It's, it's, it's other-seeking. It's other-centered. It's a love that doesn't even, even demand any love come back. And I realized that I don't think I'd hardly ever experienced that because even though I always felt loved by my parents, it was still they loved me more when I got good grades and they loved me more when I cleaned my room and I got, I got more love when I did good stuff than just I got love because that's what love does. I land in Chicago and I call my wife and I say, when I get home, I need you to make sure the kids are there. I need to talk to you about something. And of course, I'm crying on the phone and she's like, what, what, what happened? Are you all right? I said, I'll explain it. You can come to the airport. As the Lord spoke to me on that because my, my son and I, we had gone, my son at that time was about 17 We got disconnected, and I, I, I didn't know what it was. Uh, I just, Danny talks about in that book that our number one job as a parent is not just to teach our kids how to love, but also to keep our hearts connected with our kids. And my daughter and I never lost that connection, but my son and I, it was just, there was a disconnect, and I didn't know how to explain it. I didn't know what to do about it, and he explained it in this book, and that's where, listen, I, I'm going to encourage you, all right, even, even if you're a grandparent, read that book. It'll help you in every relationship. It's a powerful book. Now, my, I watch my daughter and her husband raise my grandbabies, and they're so much better parents than us, but they read that book before they had babies. First time Danny came and spoke at my conference, I sat down with him. I said, where were you with this book 20 years ago? He said, I was trying to figure it all out back then, too. He said, I'd mess my kids up, too. I'm like, yeah, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> my wife and I have said for years, our number one job in raising our kids was to do our best to not, uh, to not mess them up as bad as our parents messed us up. And, and hopefully be able to help them go a little further than us. But on that, on that flight, the Lord showed me three specific times things that I did that turned my, my son's heart away from me. One thing I did when he was seven, another when he was about 10, and one when he was 12, almost 13. So I land, my wife picks me up, and I'm trying to explain to her on the way from the airport what's going on. And she, she wasn't used to seeing me crying. She was normally the emotional one. You know, I was normally like, oh, come on, suck it up, buttercup, get over it, you know, whatever. That was just my personality, and I, I couldn't stop crying. And so I, I sit my family down on the couch, and I get on my knees, and I say, I need you guys to forgive me because I've been, I've been a donkey for a lot of years, except my King James Version. I'll have to think about that later. I said to my wife, I said, I realize that I've, I've, I've not known how to agape you. All I've known is fear. And, and all you know is fear. All you know is insecurity. And so you never really can become vulnerable because there's all the walls that are up. You, you, you don't know what else to do. It's just how you live your life. And then I, I got in front of my kids and I said to my son, I said, son, when you were seven, I said this and I did this. And you started to shut your heart off. When you were 10, this, and when you were almost 13, I tried to make you like me, and I didn't celebrate you for who you were, and I need to ask you to forgive me, and we started sobbing, and God started to reconnect, started to reconnect some things, and then over the next couple weeks, my wife was like, can we get back to normal, because we'd watch a commercial and I'd start crying. And she'd be like, are you serious? Just, it, it, when I had an encounter 
fat bed of God. Everything changed. All of a sudden, I started seeing verses. Do you know what I realized? You know that we don't just read the Bible. The Bible actually reads us. When I was an angry and hateful person, I saw all the angry and hateful verses. When I was a wrathful preacher, all I saw is all the wrath. Why? Because it exposes who you are, not who God is. There's a lot in there that more exposes you than it does God. And when I began to have an encounter with the love of God, all of a sudden all these verses that I read over for years started to explode off the page. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how come I never saw this before? Why? Because it was actually exposing me. So I, I knew God had done something pretty powerful in me because about two months later, I get on an airplane again in Michigan to fly to Colorado Springs to teach at a Bible school. And I got an upgrade into business class. And uh, I sit down next to a man, and he said hello to me, and I knew immediately. You know, he's probably 62, and he'd been out of the closet like a good 30 years. And he's like, hey. That's what it was. And uh, the plane takes off, and we start talking, and he says, so what do you do for a living? And I never tell people I'm a preacher because then they stop cussing, and they don't feel like they can be themselves. And so I told him, I said, well, I troubleshoot for nonprofit corporations because it's not a lie. It's, it's what I do. About 15 minutes into the conversation, he looks at me, and he says, you're a preacher, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir. I mean, I'm not going to lie to him. I said, yes, I am. He said, I don't believe you. I said, why? He said, because I've never been around a preacher, let alone a Christian, that I've not felt judged, ashamed, and condemned. And sir, I've not felt an ounce for you. And I looked at him, I said, can I be honest with you? He said, sure. I said, a couple months ago, you might have. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I wouldn't have been ugly to you, but a couple months ago, I probably would have just laid my head back and turned my head and, and, and took a little nap, and we probably wouldn't have had that much of a conversation. He said, so what happened a couple months ago that, 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 that changed? And I started telling him about my flight from Chicago to L.A. and this liquid love, and as I'm telling him, it starts to happen to both of us. And all of a sudden, he's listening to me, and, 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 and tears are running down his face, and he's like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And he said, do you feel that? I said, oh, oh, yeah. I said, I feel that. And he said, what is that? I said, that's the love of God. He said, it can't be. I said, what do you mean it can't be? He said, you preachers have told me that God hates me, that I'm a sodomite, that God hates me. He doesn't want anything to do with me unless I repent of all my sins and turn from all my wicked ways. But but, 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 but now you're telling me that he's pouring his love on me? I, I, I've never felt anything like this, but I'm having a hard time believing this. And so we just sat there for an hour and cried. I didn't look at him and say, repent, you heathen. Go to hell in a handbasket. Because it wasn't my job to change him. My job was to love him. My job was to share the love of Christ with him. As a matter of fact, we're, we're still Facebook friends. He actually comments every once in a while. He follows me uh, all the time. We, we exchange some stuff. I don't know if he's ever accepted Jesus, but I don't even think that's as much the point as it is that he encountered, he encountered Jesus by encountering with him. And when, when something like that happens to you, I can always tell whenever I get a religious person that's full of anger, 
somebody and I preach about love and they say, yeah, but God's all saying I just got it wrong. All it lets me know is they've never experienced his love. Because if you ever experience that, you have no wrathful heart towards anybody. Once you experience that, perfect love removes all fear. Because fear leads to punishment. That means you have a heart that you don't want anybody punished. You want people to be restored. You want people to be reconciled to God. You want, you want relationships restored. You don't want people punished. And it's sick in our head when we get excited about somebody being punished. Because that's not Christianity. It's Phariseeism, but it's not Christianity. Pharisees loved when people got punished. Get them, God. Sick in Jesus. And Jesus' heart is, Father, I have no heart of punishment because I don't have love. I am love. And as love, my response is I forgive you. Even when you're beating me and you're spitting on me and you've lied about me. See, where the rubber meets the road in Christianity is how we walk this out with other humans, not how much scripture you can quote. And if we can't walk this love walk out, I'm convinced one of the reasons we have a hard time walking the love walk out is because we've never had loving love. It changed the way I treated my wife. It changed the way I parented my kids changes the way I see human beings. I see value in another human. There was a day I had no problem being ugly to people in the name of God. Elijah was my hero. Elijah, the ornery prophet. That means I can be ugly toward you because I'm a prophet of God. And yet Jesus is our example, not Elijah. In the new covenant, we're called to be like Jesus. We have no excuse to be ugly to anybody. I thought I had a right to be because those sinners until I saw that every human is valuable to God. Every human is his offspring that don't know they're his offspring and every human is deserving of the love of God and my respect even when they've hurt me because I'm telling you, I've been beat, I've got some of the best of them. I've been lied about, I've been called a wolf, I've been called a false everything you can imagine just by preaching that God's better than you think. And I was a hard preacher yelling at everybody and nobody got upset with me. When I started telling people that God is better than they thought, all of a sudden I was the devil. Blows my mind. Blows my mind how the foundation of the church is love and it's the thing we know the least. Perfect love makes for a perfect heart. Perfect love removes all fear because fear leads to punishment. And he who still fears punishment on judgment day has not been perfected. pray for us tonight that that God would start something in us. 
pray that we not only encounter his love tonight, but maybe maybe tonight it'll at least be a beginning spark that we'll truly long long to encounter that. Again, I don't know what else to call it, just being with that. I'm telling you, I, when it poured over me, I, I, it, it didn't stop, and I, I've never felt anything so amazing. Matter of fact, you know the best definition of the love of God I've ever heard? was from an atheist who committed suicide, died for 37 minutes, and came back from the dead. And this person said, I died, I saw myself leave my body, and I went to a place of incredible peace. Which, first of all, that messed with me a little bit, but that's another discussion. An atheist who committed suicide. And he said, I met a man who exuded a love he said, the only way I know how to describe it is the day I picked up my daughter for the first time as a baby, times a million. Whew. Let me tell you, when I picked up my baby girl, I was a wreck. The love of God is that times a million? There's no greater love than what a parent feels for that little baby. You can take a hardened criminal and you put a baby in their arms. I mean, it's amazing how those little ones soften our hearts. And he said, if you want to know what the love of God is really like, is that love drives away all the fear, all the insecurity, and transforms your life. Chris, on your feet, would you please?